Father God, I pray that your spirit would be with us today. I pray that in the words I'm about to say, you would help us to understand you and the ways you are calling us better. Amen. So good morning, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Zoe, and I am an intern in the church. And I have the immense joy of preaching our final sermon in our Isaiah, the Hidden Gospel Sermon Series. I don't know if any of you have ever read the book of Isaiah. I have always found it to be an exceedingly difficult book. When I was 16, I decided that I would read the entire Bible, and with my 16-year-old confidence, I said I would start at the beginning and get to the end. I got through Leviticus, it wasn't a problem. I got through Numbers, it wasn't a problem. But it was the book of Isaiah that stumped me. But nonetheless, I am excited to speak about Isaiah today because I think it's an important book. I think it's an important book for a number of reasons. It's one of the Old Testament books that's most quoted in the New Testament. It's one of the books that the promises are most brought up in the life of Jesus. Furthermore, many of the early church fathers thought the book of Isaiah was exceedingly important. For example, St. Jerome, who was an early church father, said that Isaiah should not be seen as a prophet, but as an evangelist. He said this because he said that all of the mysteries of Christ and the church are so clearly seen in Isaiah that it was as if Isaiah was writing history rather than writing a history of what had already happened, rather than prophesying what was to come. In other words, Isaiah is not, or ought not to just be seen as a difficult book that we try to gloss over. It has relevance and meaning for us today. The book of Isaiah is a story in three parts. The first part was written to the people of Judah. The second part was written in the 6th century to an Israelite audience who were living in Babylon in exile. In this part, they call out to the Lord and they say, Lord, let us go free. And there's a lot of narrative as if this would be a second exodus. And there's so much hope for what will happen. It's in the third part that our reading comes from. In the third part, the Israelite people have been set free from their exile in Babylon and they've come home. But yet their coming home wasn't this glorious homecoming that that was hoped for in the second part of Isaiah. Rather, they seem to be quite disappointed the conditions they come back to are difficult and harsh, and the, the people begin to fall back on their, their worship of other gods, the economic uh, injustices that were in the country before are beginning to rise up again. And it's within this context that our reading takes place. Just before our reading, we hear the petitionary prayer of the Israelite people. They ask the Lord, where are you? We've come home, but all of our beautiful houses have been burnt down. Our pleasant places are ruined. Will you keep silent, Lord? How long will you punish us? The Lord responds and calls out the Israelite people. He says, it's not me, it's you. I held out my hand all day to you. You were a rebellious people who did not walk in the ways of what was right. You are a people who continually provoke me, sacrificing in God, um, to other God, gods and gardens. It's not me, it's you, responds the Lord. And then we come on to the passage that was just read for us. 
In the passage that was just read for us, a beautiful image is cast of a new heaven and a new earth, one where there will be no more weeping, where there is fairness, and people who build the houses get to live in them. They don't have to sell the houses that they built to people so that the people who bought the land can make money. There's fairness. Lions and lambs can somehow live together in this new world that's being talked about in our reading. Our reading begins with the statement of the Lord, I will create a new heaven and a new earth, one where there will be no more weeping, where there is... Ah, no. Let me tell you about what I think this new creation would look like. One thing that's really interesting is it talks about a new Jerusalem in this new creation. And for me, that points to the fact that this new creation is going to be recognizable to our current one. It's going to be one where there's building and there's people and there's food. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the resurrection is talked about and it says that our bodies will be resurrected as new physical bodies. This new heaven and this new earth that's discussed is not an ephemeral, made-up place in the sky that we're going to float. It's going to be a real physical place that's like our world. Except it will be better. Our reading says that those former things will be forgotten, those past troubles. This is a world that we've described where there will be justice and fairness. When we look around ourselves, we see a lot of a world that's a bit, bit broken, but it's not all bad. Um, we live in a world that has love and hate, that has fairness and unfairness. We together dream of a world that should be, the world that's discussed in this reading, but we don't live in that world as it should be in that world that, it one day, that one day will be, we live today in the world that is, that is now, that's a mixture of those two things. And so, what is the Lord saying to us today in this passage? We are not in the place of those Jews who just returned from exile in Babylon, who were wait, waiting for a great eschatological event to happen when order would be restored. We're not in the place of those Jews because a great eschatological event has already happened. Jesus Christ was born. God has become enfleshed and lived among us. God has come and lived and died to atone for our sins. That human propensity to muck things up. The fact that, as the apostle says, we do the things that we don't want to do We do the things we hate, and the things that we want to do, somehow we don't do. Jesus came and lived amongst us and died because of that. Because of the fact that the Israelite people, time and time again, would find themselves in exile, find themselves in difficult places, and they would call on the Lord and say they would be different, and yet they wouldn't. For the fact that we, each of us, make promises to the Lord that we don't keep. Jesus came and lived amongst us and died. And so, what does this passage have to say to us today? I often find, when I try to understand passages in the Old Testament, to look around in the New Testament for a few passages that say similar things and read them together. And I hope that reading those things together would help me understand more clearly what was going on. So while I was preparing for this sermon, I thought 
of the book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament that has the apocalyptic vision of John. In Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5, again, the new creation is discussed, saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will dwell with them, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. And that passage from Revelation, it, it feels very similar to that passage from Isaiah. And that's because John was making a direct reference to Isaiah. He was saying those promises that the Israelites were given when they left their captivity in Babylon, those promises are yet to be fulfilled. Another passage I came across was Romans 8. In Romans 8, 18 to 25, the Apostle Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation, he says, was not, was, is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope, that the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In this passage, Paul is saying that creation is waiting for, is longing for the children of God to be revealed. Right now, he says, creation is in frustration. It's, uh, it's groaning with, the labor, with labor pains. It's... It's not, something's not right, but soon, but one day, it will be brought into freedom, freedom because of the glory of the children of God. And I'm sure that today we agree that creation is groaning, it's something not right. In our increasing busyness that we live in, in the increase in mental health issues, in that increasing gap we see between those who have too much money and those who don't have enough, we know that creation is groaning. But yet, there's a discussion of a glory that means that this present suffering is not, is not seen as so hard. I wonder, what is that glory that Paul was talking about? The British theologian and former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, said that this glory, we shouldn't see it as the glowing shininess of a light bulb. Rather, he says, it refers to power, rule, and authority. He reminds us of Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, a balanced and beautiful world is described, one in which humans walked in the same garden as God, one where work was a pleasure, not a toil, one where there was no death. And in this world of Genesis 1 and 2, humans were given the role of caring, protecting, and stewarding creation. The world described in Genesis 1 and 2 is a lot like the world that was described in Isaiah 65 in our reading. It's a lot like the world that was described in Revelation 21. I wonder, what does it mean to say that creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed? In this new creation, 
We say it's going to be a physical place, like our current world, but better. And I think that this discussion of, of the glory of humankind is saying that in this new place, it won't be like an eternal holiday where we just sit around. It will say that our glory will be revealed in this new creation, that we as humankind will have power and authority. We will be stewards, but good stewards, of the world. I wonder how should we respond to that idea, that idea that our glory is going to be revealed as the people who are the stewards of our new creation. We learn from these passages that God is inaugurating a new heaven and a new earth, and that world matters to us. And so we ought not to think that we, if we consider ourselves Christians, were saved from the world, that we were saved to come and spend time in church and then maybe run out and tell someone that we were in church and then come back again. No, and sort of just let the world pass us by. Rather, we should look at these things and we should say, we were saved for the world. What it means to be Christians is far more than just telling people what we believe. To be a Christian is to enter into the great drama of God, the story of God winning the world back, the story of God at work through people, people like you and people like me. And it's through us that God is beginning to bring this peaceable kingdom into being, a kingdom where it could be a reality that a lion and a lamb could live together. There are two ways that I find myself responding to this reality. This reality that the Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth that's like and unlike ours, and where I will have a role to reveal my, my glory, as it were, to steward. The first thing that I do is I acknowledge that we live in a tension between the world as it is now and the world as it should be, the world as it one day will be. And when I begin to see the beginnings of the world as it should be, I remember to celebrate those moments, to enjoy them, to say that they're fleeting, but to remember them, to remember that that's what I'm hoping for. I get a taste what I think the new creation could be like when I go and I visit my parents back at home. They live in the countryside. And I can go and walk in the fields. And they're green, and they're not really that many humans who've messed it up. And they're rabbits who live in these fields. And they don't run away when I come because they know that I can't catch them and that I don't want to catch them. And I remember, this is what beauty looks like. I get a taste of the new creation when I'm with my friends, and someone tells a joke, and then we all laugh together. And in that moment of that um, uncomplicated togetherness of friendship, I remember, this is what I think the new creation will be like. I felt the beginnings of what the new creation could be like this morning, as we sung songs about God together. When I was with you, people who know me and who I know, and I thought, wow, look how God is, look how God works. And then I remembered yesterday when I was at my friend's birthday party and everyone was so confused why I was going to sleep early to come to church. And I thought, ah, oh, I wish they knew what it was like. And I think that's important. I think it's important that in those glimpses of what the new creation is, that we both enjoy them, but we allow them to challenge us. 
Because we don't live in that creation yet. We don't yet live in the world as it should be. Rather, right now, creation is groaning, but one day it won't be. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to be messengers, stewards, witnesses of this new creation. We know where we're going, so let's live like it. We know that the new creation will be peaceable, where lions and lambs can live together. Let us be people of peace in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our families. Let us pray for peace in the world. We know that the new creation will be just. When we see things that are wrong, let's be people that say, that's not right. I was recently reading this article that looked at what happened in Nazi Germany, and it was talking about the banality of evil. And it said, we like to think that evil is a certain group of bad guys that go and do stuff. But it said, much more evil comes when a lot of normal people just walk on by. Let's be people that see other people's problems as our responsibilities. Do we know the names of our neighbors? Do we know the names of the people who are here? How often do we sit down and say to someone, how are you? What's going on in your life? How can I help you? We know that the new creation will be a place where God will walk amongst us, where we will be known and will know God. How wonderful is that? And yet so many people today think God has nothing to do with them. It's just a clever myth or a cozy fantasy. Let us be people that bear witness to our belief in this good God. Let us live a life that says, on, let it be on earth like it is in heaven, in the hope of the new earth, the new earth where it will be like that. I often like to think of first order and second order desires. A first order desire is itching an itch. And you, you have an itch, so you itch your itch, but you can just keep on going. And what are you doing with your life but itching that itch? And ultimately, it doesn't really satisfy you. You're like, this is going on quite a long time. But there's also a second-order desire. A second-order desire is when you want something, but you acknowledge it takes a little bit of time to get it. For example, I love dominoes. But what I actually deep down inside love more is a bit of well-cooked food, when you chop your vegetables and you cook them and it takes a little bit of time. That's a second-order desire because I'm, I'm putting off my desire for food for a little bit, I'm, I'm working for it. But yet that's more truly fulfilling. I often find myself living with, I often find that when I just think about this world, I, I just think about my first order desires, those things I want right now, those things that, um, the things I see, the things I want. But I find that as I think of the world to come, I begin to live in my second order desires. I begin to realize that right here and right now, I am a witness and a messenger and a steward of this new creation. And as I begin to act on those things I feel God calling me to, I feel like I'm becoming more truly myself. And I feel those are the second order desires, what it means to be true Christians, true children of God. And so let us be people who are prayerfully attentive to the way that God is at work, the way that God is bringing in the new creation. And let us hope with God and act with God. Let us not forget to celebrate when we see that what God is doing.
We know what's coming. Let's live like it. Amen. Thanks, Zoe. I got a little confused just at the end there when Zoe said that she really liked Domino's, but she prefers a well-prepared meal with kind of chopped things. And I was thinking, Domino's, like the things you flick over? Like, Domino's pizza is what you're going for. There you are. Um, but I think that's a good little kind of um, jumping off point for us to pray into a little, because um, actually we're going to celebrate communion in a moment. And uh, communion is a sort of foretaste of the great banquet that God is preparing for us all. And in Isaiah 25, a little earlier on in the book, um, the prophet talks about a feast on the mountain with fine wines and wonderful foods and people from every nation being gathered to that mountain to, to feast in the presence of God. Uh, and so this image of food, of a, of a well-prepared meal, something that takes time to prepare, uh, I think is one that's really helpful for us. So let's just um, pray for a moment. Father, thank you that in Jesus we have uh, the one who truly